it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. I'm here to bring you the story behind the story. When I read a book that intrigues me, no matter the genre, I want to know more. Who is this writer? What challenges and mundanities led them to create something so profound? More than craft and publishing stories, I'm here for the in-between. The ways our various identities and intersectionalities inform our stories and make us who we are. The ways we transform barriers, borders, and boundaries into art. Happy September, y'all. When season one of the podcast wrapped in May, shit had officially hit the fan. And as we move into autumn now, the proverbial shit has been sent into every corner and crevice possible. We are facing the single most important presidential race, perhaps, in U.S. history. And it feels like we've never been more divided as a country. Almost as if we're on the brink of a second civil war. In the midst of all this, I'm moved to continue doing the thing I know how to do. The thing I love to do, which is bring you people's stories and hopefully, in turn, bring us all a little bit closer together. As many of you know, I also committed to bringing forth as many stories as possible from black and indigenous people of color writers and activists. And I could not imagine a better way to start season two than sharing my conversation with S.A. Cosby about his new crime novel, Blacktop Wasteland. It was recently tweeted about by Stephen King, His novel follows Beauregard, a.k.a. Bug, through the difficult and consequential decision to re-enter the world of crime to make some ends meet. I'm hoping it's only a matter of time before Cosby sells the movie rights because I literally could not put this book down. Before we get started, please drop over to patreon.com slash situation and story to show support for these important conversations and stories. For as little as five bucks a month, you can receive early ad-free access to episodes. I cannot do this without you. Thank you so much. S.A. Cosby is a writer from southeastern Virginia. He won the 2019 Anthony Award for Best Short Story for The Grass Beneath My Feet. And his previous books include Brotherhood of the Blade and My Darkest Prayer. His most recent novel, Blacktop Wasteland, is the topic of today's discussion. I'll be damned if I let some neo-confederate apologists tell me and define for me what my experience in the South is supposed to be. 
think I was worried that writing a book like this with an African-American lead character that some people would just dismiss it because it wasn't the traditional protagonist. And I, I felt like maybe people wouldn't be receptive to it. And what I've been pleasantly surprised to see is that people are not only receptive, but they're, they're thirsting for stories like this. Why do you write? I think because it's the one thing I feel like I'm kind of good at. I have, I have terrible uh, low self-esteem and crippling self-doubt and a uh, horrible body image, dysmorphia and everything. And um, But writing and telling stories is just the one thing I feel like I can do. It's, it's always come naturally to me, which doesn't mean it come easy, but it's always felt natural. And so even when I feel like, you know, I'm uh, Igor from a Frankenstein movie or I feel really depressed or whatever, telling a story uh, always brings me out of it. Damn, that's intense. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's amazing how many how many writers I talk to that say they have crippling self-doubt. Most Most writers that I know, and I have a lot of friends who are writers or creative people um you you spend a lot <laughs> writing for me is always in three sections the first is the idea like all right well, that's a pretty cool idea i think that's interesting then it's the there's a long section in the middle where it's like oh this is absolute crap oh my god this is horrible what am <laughs> i doing wasted and then there's a time toward the end where you're like you know it's not so bad there's a good line here or a good line there or i think i really hit that paragraph or that character's coming off the page but then when you send it out for edits and you get it back and it's back to part two again like oh this is crap what am i doing <laughs> <laughs> but in the end it's 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 worth it because there's a moment i think with every writer uh, writers especially but a writer or a songwriter or even a dancer or an actor where anybody who's creative there's a moment where you hit that sweet spot where you realize yeah this is what i was trying to say now whether it's good or not i don't know but i said <laughs> what i was trying to say as well as i could so that's good stuff so uh your new novel blacktop wasteland was published in july as a mm -hmm. crime novel mm -hmm. others are calling it Rural Noir, Gabino Iglesias in his review of your book for NPR said uh, that crime is the least important element in the book. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about what to you is your novel and do you agree with Iglesias about that bit on, on crime being the least important element? I mean, I always want to agree with Gabino uh, Iglesias. He's a brilliant <laughs> writer and reviewer in his own right. I think if you would have, if you would have, to group everything in by a hierarchy, then crime would be number three out of five, maybe. I think number one, it's a character study about the main character whose name is a Beauregard Bug Montage to his friends. Um, but two, it's definitely a story about the South and about the rural area. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Southeastern Virginia um, near the Chesapeake Bay. You know, I grew up in a, a lower working class or a, a lower tier working class family. My father was a, uh, what we call that here, a waterman or a fisherman. My mom was a, um, 
was a, a like a school like a, a teacher's assistant for and then you know uh, she got sick and so i always tell people my uh the first seven years of my life are like a bad country song because my parents split up my mom got sick and our house burned down and so oh, shit. yeah yeah so yeah the, the book is definitely a, a a book about rural life and the rural experience and the rural you know black experience and then i think number three it is a crime novel I think ultimately, Stephen King said, it doesn't matter, I'm paraphrasing, Stephen King said, it doesn't matter what your book is about if it's not interesting, if it's not a good story. Story is paramount. So when I set out to write the book, the first thing I want to do is tell a good story. I wanted it to be interesting. I wanted to have an interesting character. I had a certain style that I was trying to go for. Uh, but I also wanted to talk about a couple of things that are important to me, things that I think that are relatable to other people, poverty and class and race and, and masculinity, both tragic and toxic, um, the relationship between fathers and sons. Um, and so I made those things subtextual, you know, they're, they're under the surface, but I didn't want to, nobody wants to sit there and like read a 300 page sermon, you know, like, Jonathan Edwards, oh, yeah. you know, centers in the, in the hands of an angry God for like 300 pages. So, you know, you add, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't, I don't need, uh, I don't need early, uh, I don't need Cotton Mather yelling at me for like three days while I'm reading the book. But um, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make the book interesting enough, but also talk about those issues. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a crime novel, uh, but if somebody else wants to call it, Southern rule literary noir. I'm not going to stop them. I mean, you know, but I hope that people do take some things out of it other than just the gunfights and the, you know, the uh, graphic violence. Or as, like my mom likes to say, a little bit of medicine makes a little bit of honey makes the medicine go down. So hopefully people take, you know, they enjoy the book, but maybe take something from it that's a little deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I for sure did. I I picked it up on recommendation from a good friend who's a fiction writer. Um, Hillary Leftwich, and yeah. I couldn't put it down. And and I don't usually read that much fiction, but I couldn't I couldn't stop. It was like a good movie. Like what's gonna what's going what's gonna happen next? It was really well written, but absolutely for me, it was more of that stuff you were doing uh, under the surface and more subtly, like mm. race and class poverty. Yeah, you mentioned Stephen King. I'm pretty sure I saw. <laughs> Stephen King's reading your book. I don't know if he's reading it yet, but there was a tweet. I, it's a funny story how that that, that well, how I was notified of that. So I'm sitting at home one day working on a current project, which is giving me fits. Oh God, I'm like, I, you know, it's I love this project I'm working on, but it's 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 something outside of my normal wheelhouse. So I'm like, you know, writing for like 20 minutes and taking a shot of whiskey and going back to writing some more. It's, it's, it's a lot. But anyway, a friend of mine texted me and they were like, have you been on Twitter today? I said, no, I've been writing. And they were like, you need to go on Twitter. I'm like, okay. So I go on Twitter and I see my mentions have blown up. Like, oh, what is that about? So then I clicked on the original tweet and yeah, it was like, he was complimenting another writer and he was a uh, Meg Gardner. Who's a great writer. She writes crime fiction and she had posted a picture of her to be red pile. So one of my, my book was, on the pile and he said something to the effect of oh that black top wasteland sounds like something special i should pick up a copy and then all my friends were like yes you should so they are all like <laughs> in but it, for me it just blew my mind it, yeah. it melted my brain you know it's like you could have not knocked me over with a proverbial feather because i mean not to get too treacly or 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 corny but 
Stephen King's work has meant a lot to me for a long time. You know, he was, Stephen King books were the first like quote unquote grown up books that I read. You know, I grew up, you know, like everybody reading kids books and, you know, I'm dating myself now, but I used to read uh, like the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and, and, you know, Judy Bloom and all that. And so my aunt was a big fan or is a big fan of Stephen King. So when I was around 10 or 11, I might have been younger than that, I might have been nine, she started giving me the books that, of his that she had read. So I was, she would finish with it and then give it to me. And it was the, his books were the first books that I read where I realized how powerful a writer can be, how powerful an author can be, how you can fully transport somebody to a different world, whether it's small town Maine overrun by vampires or whether it's, you know, uh, you know, the owls outside of Westeros and Game of Thrones, the author, a really good author can take you into their world. And I was just, you know, I just became obsessed with this stuff for a long time. And I've read everything he's ever written. And so, you know, those books were there for me in times sometimes where things weren't so great. And, you know, or just sometimes when you just kind of feeling down, those books were able to help me and transport me to a different place. You mentioned Stephen King as an influence. I was wondering what your experience has been like as a black man entering and crushing this genre, which historically seems to be super white. I don't know if I'm crushing it, but... um, I say you're crushing it. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting because uh, there's a lot, there's a long tradition of, like you said, you know, cisgender white males writing crime fiction. And of course, we're looking at things through their perspective. And as a lot of times growing up as a kid, I was a huge fan of all. I'm a huge fan of books in general, but I was a huge fan of crime and horror growing up. And uh, I think crime and horror are kissing cousins. My friend Ed Kurtz, who's a writer, says that that's his line originally. So I want to give him credit. I think it's interesting because when you're a kid and you read horror and crime, you know, you never see anybody. If you're a, 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 a kid of color, you never see, or if you're an LGBTQ kid or you're, um, you know, a, a you, you never see people that look like you or you don't see a lot of people that look like you. Or if you do see them, they're relatively caricatures and not characters. And so I think what I did as a reader is I took the things I really enjoyed from read writers like Raymond Chandler and Stephen King and Ramsey Campbell and, you know, uh, Dennis Etchison and, and uh you know, uh, uh, Ross McDonald and John D. McDonald and uh, all the great, you know, crime writers. And I took the things and, and, and writers in general, I took the good things that I liked and I, you know, I ingested those. I let those, you know, become a part of me. And then I you just you, you learn to kind of jump over the bad things or the things that aren't so pleasing in, in some of those older books. And, and then if you're lucky, like I was, you find that there are people who look, look like you who are writing books. They just weren't as well known, like. You know, there's a great uh, African-American writer, uh, crime writer named Chester Himes, who wrote a lot of books. There's a Barbara Neely wrote crime novels. And so you you learn to compartmentalize and, and take all the good parts of that, those things and work them into your own style and, and, and influence. I think the biggest thing I've learned so far is that I think I was worried that writing a book like this with an African-American lead character that some people would just dismiss it because it wasn't the traditional protagonist. And I, I felt like maybe people wouldn't be receptive to it. And what I've been pleasantly surprised to see is that people are not only receptive, but they're 
they're thirsting for stories like this. They're thirsting for new tales, um, you know, with people of, you know, different ethnicities, people of different sexual orientations, people from different parts of the country. There's a whole, in my opinion, there's a whole, um, I don't want to say prejudice, but there is a, a certain sense of condescension when it comes to Southern fiction. You know, everybody will talk about, you know, William Faulkner or Udara Welty or Flannery O'Connor, but they kind of will derisively talk about the South and rural life and rural folks. And so to be a part of that new school of writers like David Joy and Ace Atkins and, and other, other great Southern rural writers that are that are coming along, it's it's very gratifying. And to be a part of a new wave of, of writers of color, you know, there's so many great writers of color that are coming along. Victor Laval in horror and uh, Tay Thompson in sci-fi, people like Kelly Garrett and, you know, writing cozy mysteries and, you know, the great Attica Locke. And of course, you know, the, the, the grandfather of that movement, you know, Walter Mosley. So to be a, to see how things are advancing and we have a long way to go, make no, make no mistake about that, but to see how things are advancing, is really gratifying. I've gotten a lot of emails from people, white people, black people from all across the country who really are identifying with the book. But it does have, I think, have a special place in the hearts of people who grew up in the South and grew up the way I did, you know, and, and went to, uh, you know, went to what we call field parties and almost died from alcohol poisoning. So it's like, <laughs> you know, yeah. if you're from the South or you're not from the South, a field party is where you get a bunch of your buddies together. You go find an abandoned field somewhere and everybody turns on their headlights. And then you go to the store and you find a, a near the well uh, older person to buy you some um, some cheap wine or beer. And then where I come from, the cheapest wine was MD 2020, Mad Dog to his friends. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's a part, you know, there's a beautiful, exquisite part about being from the South and there's, there's a grotesque part about it too. And so I try to represent all of that, but, you know, to your question, being a part of this new movement in fiction is, is, is gratifying and it, and it, it fills me with hope. I'm just pleased to do my part as much as I can. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind that this book is advancing that movement for sure. You mentioned field parties. I don't know if you watch the new Unsolved Mysteries on oh, Netflix. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, well, you, I, reading your book reminded me of that one case where, you know, the black kid came along to a field party it was maybe one one of two uh mm -hmm. black kids at the party and ended up apparently being you know murdered mm -hmm. and what are your thoughts on that i mean I, was gonna say, I think there's like i said i was speaking earlier about geographical condescension where there's an idea that you know they, don't get me wrong like if you're writing or talking or, or or discussing dangerous places uh for people of color or just dangerous places for people in general yeah you know an alley in new york city at three o'clock in the morning is, is dangerous but to me, there's no more dangerous place in the world than a dark country road in the middle of the night because there's a sense that, you know, you're so far away from anyone. You know, there's this mis mis misconception that, like, if you're in the city and something happens, nobody's going to help you. I don't think that's true. I've, you know, I think that people are way better than I think there's more human kindness than people are, are, are aware of or accept. But if you're in the middle of the, of the country, like that young gentleman at a field party, and there's, you know, you're miles and miles away from anybody that has your best interest at heart, that can be a dangerous situation. You know, I mean, I've had my share of um, altercations at parties in, in, in a rural setting, you know, in a lighter, on a lighter note, the funny thing about it is little growing up in the country, a lot of times only one or two of your friends has a car. And so everybody piles up in that vehicle to go to the party because it's usually mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 miles away. 
And so I've I've seen more on, one, on more than one occasion. The people I went to the party with get arguing among themselves, but then you got to suck it up because everybody's got to go back together. And so you don't want nobody's mama mad at you. Um, so you know, <laughs> you know, on, so you don't want to explain to Miss Jones why you why you left uh, her son at this party. Um, but on a more serious note, I think that does as you know they illustrate on unsolved mysteries that, that can lead to hor- horrific, tragic events because of that. Desolation, desolation and isolation and nobody's around and you know character is what you do when nobody's looking and a lot of times some people's character is corrupt and so a small rural area is unfortunately a perfect location for that corruption to rise to the surface yeah i mean i was surprised at how much violence you know was gotten away with in your oh, yeah. book I mean, it's not something I, I grew up in South Jersey, which is somewhat of a rural area, but it's not the rural <laughs> South. I just couldn't, you know, imagine. The funny thing about being in a small town is like I wrote a mystery novel before I wrote this book for an independent uh-huh. publisher called My Darkest Prayer. And it got rejected a bunch because the larger uh, publishers just couldn't get past it. They're like, I can't believe this much crime and violence and stuff is going on in a small town. And, you know, if you watch a show like Unsolved Mysteries or Dateline NBC or ID Network, look how many of these murders and and mysterious circumstances happen in small towns because there's because, like I said, there's isolation, desolation. But there's also a sense of insulation that the town is insular. They don't talk about what happened. They don't tell what happened. I often say a murder in a small town isn't often a whodunit. It's a can you prove it? Because 90 percent of the time we know did it. We all know everybody's talking about it. They're talking about it at the AMP. They're talking about it at church. They're talking about it at the field party. And so it's not so much a, a, a mystery as it is. You don't have to solve the mystery. You have to break that community. You have to break that code of silence that exists in small towns. You know, and I think, you know, again, you, you can see it all across the country. There's this weird sense of camaraderie in a way. And so and then there's fear, you know, people are afraid to speak out and it's it's a different set of circumstances. So when you have a book like Blacktop Wasteland or a book like Winter's Bone by Daniel Woodrell or a book like When These Mountains Burn by David Joy, writers who write about rural America, that's something that, like you said, it's hard for people to imagine that. But I grew up with that. I, I know of three unsolved mis- murder or mysteries that are happening in my area right now. There are three people missing in the last two years. And I live in Gloucester, Virginia. I was raised in Matthews County, Virginia. And I'm right next door to another small county called Middlesex. And so it's, it's you know emblematic of that idea that people don't talk, they don't speak, and they mind their own business to the detriment of their neighbors sometimes. And so I think that's something that the rural noir crime fiction movement is showing people that, yeah, you know, you have violence in, you know, in Jersey and New York and in and, 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 and Illinois and Chicago and Philadelphia. Um, and it's an immediacy of violence, but it's also a distance from it. You know, there's if somebody shoots somebody from across the street or a drive by or anything like that, there's this distance from it. And in small towns, the violence is personal. It's very um, visceral. You know, and it usually involves people that know each other. You know, it's not a, there's not a lot of stranger murders in small towns. And it's usually is born of, you know, sex or money, you know, lust mm-hmm. or love. And so I think it, it can. That's why I think also when you watch a show, you you know, you brought up like Unsolved Mysteries. It's it, it cuts deep because it is such, like I say, a personal, emotional act in small towns. I try to illustrate that in my writing. And so, yeah, all the stuff that happens in Blacktop Waste and they get away with, well, they don't get as noticed as much 
Because again, it's a small town. And again, people kind of keep to themselves. They mind their own business. And sometimes they handle their own problems. So I try to, you know, I'm not the first person to uh, turn that wheel, but I definitely use that as a, as a narrative um, device. Yeah. You did have one character who does talk. <laughs> <laughs> Should have kept their mouth shut. <laughs> as a character said, as a character said in the book, you like a broken refrigerator can't keep nothing. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the the character who said that is uh the the main antagonist, Lazy Mother's Ball. So he's the main antagonist yeah. of the book. Which is funny. Yeah. I heard the, I heard the audio book uh, when it came out. I didn't realize I was trying to make him intimidating when I was writing it. But the guy who read the audio book, uh, his name is Adam Lazaro White. He's an actor and uh, narrator, and he's really good. He's incredible. He did something with his voice, and so listening to it, I was like, "Man, this dude is creepy as hell." I didn't realize <laughs> the character. I didn't realize how creepy the character was until I actually heard the the way he delivered and the cadence in which he spoke. It was like, oh man, this oh he's yeah he's messed up. So it's funny. Even yeah. I wrote the book, and it's like I didn't realize how weird and strange and creepy he could be. So <laughs> people were complimenting me about, oh, I love the villain. He's so creepy, and so and I was like, I don't think he's creepy. I mean, he's a little sarcastic. You no, know, when you hear somebody read it like that in an audiobook, it creeped me to it creeped me out. So I think it's kind of. <laughs> Um, I did. I have. I just have the Kindle book. I didn't listen to the audio, but he still. I felt like he was super creepy. I'm glad. I was. I was going for that, but like I said, it just didn't. I didn't get it. You know, and I li- I've lived this book. I've lived with this book for a year and a half, so I didn't get it the way people were getting it. And then, like I said, I guess also I was like in my house with the lights off and listening to it through earphones or uh, headphones. So it was like he when he does that, and you know, I describe his voice in the book as a weird sing-songy cadence and he did it the mm-hmm. audiobook narrative he got that cadence right down it's it's a it's part southern preacher and it's part like carnival barker so he he got it he nailed it so yeah he's creepy as f so anyway <laughs> i mean speaking of your characters i feel like i could picture and relate to almost every one of them on some level, almost like I've met them at some point. What is your characterization process like? How much of your characters do you pull from people in your life? You said earlier that this number one to know about this book is that it's a character study. And I mean, it's really well done. So let's talk about that a little bit. Oh, thank you. Um, Usually my process is all my characters are obviously fictional, but you know, they're inspired by people I know. Like Bug is uh, was inspired by a relative of mine who, who's no longer with us, who was, um, we used to call him the Mozart of, of motors because he was just a genius with motors. He never went to school for it, but he knew how to work on cars. He knew how to fix cars. He knew how to soup cars up. He souped my... Uh, <laughs> he souped my old wheel up so much I got two speeding tickets in the same day. Um, but, <laughs> he, but he was just, he had that ability. But he was nothing like Bug. He was a big, kind hearted, he was a big old teddy bear. But I took, I always remembered his ability. You know, he just had, like, he, he you know, some people are just a genius and, you know, their genius is in, in, in different, you know, genres or different subjects. You know, like Einstein said, you don't call a fish stupid because he can't climb a tree. And so I used his mechanical genius, but I, I I pulled from books that I read and anti-hero tropes to create a uh, bug and, and, you know, like same thing with Ronnie and Reggie and all the guys and, and, and Kia and Ariel, um, Bug's daughter in the book and uh, his sons. But for me, what I do is, I don't know, it might be kind of weird, but I, I write 
pretty detailed biographies for my characters. A lot of stuff never makes it in the book, but I'll write a two or three page long bio for my character. What's their favorite food? You know, are they left-handed or right-handed? Um, you know, when, when did they lose their virginity? When did they, you know, they have a, their first fist fight? You know, what was their uh, favorite movie growing up? What kind of music did they listen to? You know, where have they been? Have they lived in a small town all their lives or have they moved away? And so there's a lot of stuff that never makes it in the book. But then I use that and I'll drop like referential phrases or, or notes throughout the narrative. You know, like if anybody reads the book, has read the book, you know, Bug is left handed. You don't notice that. But he does everything with his left hand. And I did that because in his bio that I wrote that nobody will ever see, you know, he's he learned he, he you know, he learned to drive and he drives with his left hand is his dominant hand, you know, because he has to shift with his right. Um, but he also froze with his left hand and, you know, stuff like that. And so I, I do that for all the characters. I do it for Ronnie, for Reggie in my previous books and in the book I'm working on now. I did the same thing. I do these really copious bios. To me, that makes the characters feel more real. You know, and it, it, it gives it's not just idiosyncrasies for idiosyncratic sake. You know, it, I like to I don't like to just sprinkle weird stuff in there just because. So I like to give it a little background, even if they have to reference it two or three times during the book. It becomes it just makes them more real. You know, we all have friends that have little weird things that they do that maybe we don't even talk about, but we notice them. You know, I have a friend that has a slight case of OCD. So whenever she gets in a car, she has to touch the dashboard, then touch the window and then touch the dashboard again. She don't even know she's doing it half the time. It's little things like that. It's not to make fun of anybody. It just creates a more whole, complete picture of the characters. So yeah. that's part of my process. And then the other part is just, I try to create dialogue. I use dialogue a lot. And I, I like try to create dialogue in a way that has a familiar cadence, like the way people really talk. And the way people really talk is they cut each other off. And so they sometimes talk on top of each other. They talk in short clip sentences. And dialogue helps you define characters. Like with Bug, you know, he's very taciturn. He doesn't talk a lot. He thinks a lot. He has a long, lot of internal monologue, but he doesn't have a lot to say. He's very quiet and still. Whereas Ronnie is a mile a minute. He's talking every five seconds. Um, and so, you know, and it helps just it helps for the reader. It's almost like a, a, a subconscious way of helping the reader differentiate between characters. So that's another more technical, drafty thing that I try to do. The, the word whole is what comes to mind when I think of your characters. So that comes through. I think you called uh, Beauregard a anti-hero earlier. Yeah, like he's my protagonist. He's the main character, but I don't know how heroic he is. Beauregard, a lot of his problems come from... What I like to say, an an immaturity, not that he's an immature man or he's childish, but he's immature in the the sense that he can't let go of his past. You know, he has this, you know, some people call it daddy issues, but he has this very complex issue with his father and he puts his father on this pedestal that, frankly, I don't think his father deserves. But he has to do that as his coping mechanism, because otherwise he Mm -hmm. he doesn't he can't cope with his father disappearing. You know, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's funny because when you read the book, a lot of people you know, they're like, oh, his dad left him. He did. He disappeared. But, you know, when I was writing the book, in my mind, his dad left because he thought he was doing the right thing. He didn't just abandon him. He realized there's a there's a thing that happens in the book. And I'm not going to spoil it for people who haven't seen it. And after that thing happens, I always thought to me, his father left because, like, they're going to keep coming after me if I stay here. Now, that's not the way Beauregard took it. And that's not the way Beauregard's mom took it. But I always thought that was his thought process. And so for Beauregard to deal with that, he's created this idealized version of his father that he knows is probably false, but that's the only way he can function. 
And so a lot of his problems come from that sense of immaturity, not being able to let go of the car. There's a, a car in the book that belonged to his dad, you know, that he won't give up. Even when they have financial problems and his wife is like, sell the car, that'll give us some breathing room. He can't bring himself to do it. And that sense of immaturity leads to a sort of hubris. And that hubris, you know, is born of the idea that he, you know, Beauregard knows nine times out of 10, he's the smartest person in the world. But Mm -hmm. that hubris, when mixed with his immaturity, leads him to make unfortunate mistakes that, you know, bring a lot of of trauma and despair and tragedy to his family. And so I don't know if he's a hero. I think he does heroic things, but he's also a person that can compartmentalize his morality. You know, he knows how Mm -hmm. to put his conscience on a shelf. And I don't know if that makes him a good person, you know, and but I, I love the guy. And I, I like him, but I don't know if he's a good person. But I, I think I would have a drink with him, but I don't think I would go for a ride with him. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, the car. That's when you when you mention the immaturity, I'm like, huh, I didn't really think of him like that. But then when I think about the car and every time Kia, yeah, there's such a polarity there. He's like, no, absolutely fucking not. Like, yeah. And he, then by he, the end, you're thinking, well, damn, if he had just sold the car. Yeah. <laughs> I have a, I have a I have a friend who's a writer and she read the uh the first draft of the book and she always jokes me because she's like you know if he had just listened to his wife this book would only been seven pages long and I'm like I know but that wouldn't have been a story nobody wanted to read so she's like I know but it just she's like it just irritates me I'm like all right all right yeah. <laughs> oh that's funny yeah I don't know I could relate to him on so many levels and i could also see my father in him you know different situation Mm -hmm. uh, upbringing and whatnot and my father's white but he grew up inner city south philly Mm -hmm. so he's got that you know he's got that city soul about him and uh (laughs) i know he's definitely done some you know, questionable things along the way. But yeah. <laughs> but, but most of the time, it was related to, you know, that cycle of poverty that, you know, mm-hmm. we were in the, in the cycle of poverty, too, when I was growing up. I didn't know yeah. I was poor. That's probably the difference. But that cycle was so apparent in the book. And it's mm-hmm. like, I hope more <laughs> privileged people read it. So they can kind of understand. Yeah, it's funny. I you said you didn't. I I didn't know we were poor either. I didn't realize we were poor until probably the third grade. There was a kid. I'm not gonna say his name. You know, I'd like to, but I'm not gonna say his name. But there was a there was a kid who his brother had gone to school with my brother, and my brother had given me his shoes. I had to wear his sneakers to school, and my brother had done this thing where he had um. He had burned, I don't know why he did it, but he he had burned his initials. I'm, I'm again, I'm telling how old I am. There were a pair of Chuck Taylor Converse's. They were black. <laughs> and he had burned or scratched or somehow done something to the shoe where his initials were in the back of it. And this kid saw it and he was like, those are your brother's shoes. And I'm like, no, they're not. And I knew they were. And he was like, no, those are your brother's shoes. And my brother said it was dumb for him to write on them or something. And I was the first, and I went home and asked my mom, I said, you know, why can't I get a pair of shoes? And she was wrong with those. And I'm like, well, A, they my brothers and B, he wrote his name on them and C, kids are picking on me. And my mom dropped that line that I think a lot of moms do. It's like, you don't go to school for no fashion show. And I was like, all right, I, I get that. But can I get some new shoes? And I think that was the first time I realized she said, well, we can't get any right now. We'll get you some later. And it was I think it was the first time I realized, oh, we can't just go and get stuff that we want, like just basics like shoes. And so I was, you know, when I come to writing a book, there's a lot of talk about being poor in a book. There's a lot of talk about poverty. I think that some people in poverty have a certain amount of um, not to make light of this at all, 
Um, but I think there's a certain like almost PTSD sometimes that comes from being, you know, living in poverty, living in, in, in poor surroundings. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a grown man now. Yeah, I'm a grown man and I still keep a change bucket because I drop all my change in it because I paid for gas with quarters and, and dimes, you know, and so I think that stays with you. And so I wanted to talk about that in the book in a way that was cathartic for me. You know, growing up, we used to get we couldn't get Fruit Loops. And so we would get the, the off-brand cereal called Fruit Rings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when I became a man, when I moved out, when I got my first like really grown-up job, I bought the biggest damn box of Fruit Loops. Oh my God! <laughs> you should I should have wheeled that thing in the house on a handcart. And I, I ate like three bowls of Fruit Loops, like because it was just this weird symbol of okay, yeah, I, I finally can get something that I want that I can get something that I want and I don't have to worry about it so much. And I don't have to like, you know, and I, you know, I feel for my parents, even though they were separated, you know, it's hard raising kids in that, you know, and, and, you know, when you, when, when everybody's telling you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but you ain't got no fucking boots, you know? And so, um, so I did want to talk about that. And I talk about that a lot in my writing in general, it's a way for me to kind of deal with it. It's, you know, it's cheaper than therapy, but, um, (laughs) but, But like you said, it's something that is is relatable, whether you're from South Jersey or whether you're from Southeastern Virginia. Poor is poor, you know, and, and I think that's something that I hope, like you said, people will take from the book and understand. Because I'm a firm believer that people, some people think that people, there's various reasons why people commit crime. You know, people commit crime, maybe they're addicts, people commit crimes because maybe they're sociopaths. But I think the majority of people commit crime because they're desperate. And they don't see yeah. any other way out. And so I really wanted to examine what drives a person to commit a crime, what drives a person to take that route as opposed to the other routes that are maybe not so easily ac- accessible to them. And so um, it's definitely something that is a big cast a long shadow on my work. I mean, the book I'm working on right now, it talks about it in a little bit of detail, um, not as much as Blacktop, but it's still in there. It's still discussed. It's still a part of the fabric of my um, fictional world. Um, there's other issues I'm talking about in that book, though, that take precedence, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a lot of racists in my family. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put that out there. You know, mm-hmm. I, for example, one of my uncles, I mean, that it's been apparent my whole life. It's been around the dinner table and the language he's using and the way he's talking about certain groups of people. And, you know, even as a little kid and all up through growing up, I'm thinking, you know, man, he's got all these you know, this whole narrative about the black community and how, mm-hmm. how can I, like, it's going to be my life's purpose to argue him like yeah. out of it. And I feel like books like this are huge. Not that, I mean, he probably would never read it, but it's like, <laughs> you know, it, maybe, maybe it, he did. He, maybe he did. And, and left me a one star. Cause there's a few one star reviews that seem to be pissed yeah. off that the, the main character is black. But anyway, it's kind of funny. But oh anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's like, come on. I mean, it's like, you know, black or white, you're, it doesn't matter. You're committing, like you just said, most crime is committed out of desperation or because there's no other fucking option. So that's why story is so important. It's funny, you know, just to, real quick to talk about race a little bit. In the book, yeah. I don't try to hit people over the head with it. Again, nobody wants a 300 page sermon. But there are little things that I, I drop in that I think are relevant to, you know, I wrote this book in 2017. And, um, but, you know, the things that are happening, that are happening now are so relevant were relevant, were happening then, unfortunately. And I think one of the things I hope people take from this is that I drop little hints in the book 
that Beauregard is really smart. Like he has an eidetic memory. You know, he can do math. He can do like four digit multiplication in his head. He's a mechanical genius, you know, and I don't say that, you know, lightly. He really is. I designed him as a character to be that smart. Yeah, he's smart with the heist and planning them and stuff. But the way he like in the beginning when he can listen to the engine and, and of his mm-hmm. uh, drag race opponent and figure out what's wrong with it. One of uh, the folks that contacted me, a, a reader, has said, you know, I felt, you know, at the end of the book, I felt so sad because, you know, he should have been like, you know, a, a mechanical engineer some way. He should have went to college and, you know, and I said, yeah, but I said, growing up where I grew up, guys like Beauregard often didn't get the chance to go to college. There's a, you know, there's this idea that being poor is bad. Being poor and white is bad. Being poor and black is really bad. Being poor and white in the in a rural area is really, really bad. Being poor and black in a rural area is really, 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 really bad. And so yeah. you don't have as many connections and, and, and opportunities when you're poor and black in a rural area. Say you're your white neighbor. And that's not that's not an insult or anything or a tag. That's just the reality of the situation. You know, mm-hmm. you know, growing up, you know, I wanted to go to college and, uh, you know, with my parents and I have enough money and, 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 you know, I started for a couple of years. I had to drop out. I, I have a friend who's a good friend of mine. He's a white guy, um, you know, and he was very poor. But his mom's brother had a little bit of money and worked at the bank as a you know middle manager and was able to help him out. There's not that same social safety network for people of color sometimes that it is for other folks. And so, you know, I just, again, I'm not beating you over the head with that in the book, but I do mention that, you know, there's a little mention of that where, you know, a a guy who's a a guidance counselor when Bug is a child, he remembers that he wanted him to go to college and stuff, you know, and there's a line in the book that for guys like Bug, you know, they don't have the luxury of options. That's not a way of saying, you know, pity me or feel sorry for me or give me a handout. That's just stating the situation as it is. You know, and, and, and there, you know, for every guy like Bug who makes the wrong decision, there's dozens of guys who, you know, try to do the right thing and, and do succeed. But I do think it's important to show that part of the equation, you know, but on, at, at the same time, it's not easy for Ronnie. You know, even though Ronnie is sort of a secondary antagonist, there's parts where I talk through Ronnie about how he feels about being poor and, you know, being what he thinks he calls himself trash, you know, and, and he's dealing with that kind of poverty, PTSD to an extent. And so, you know, poverty and class are, are big themes in, in the book. And like I said, I think, but race is there too. There's, you know, you know, part of Bug's problem at the beginning of the book, he owns an auto mechanic shop and he was doing fine. And then some guys, you know, uh, hit, uh, hit the lottery and they opened their own shop and there's some white gentlemen and some of the more, the less advanced people in the in town have started going over there and, and he's losing business to them and uh, something happens to their business and they automatically assume he has something to do with it and they say some ugly things to him. You know, that's the reality in my life. I grew up with that kind of reality. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because being a person of color in America, you're always on guard for somebody to disappoint you. You know, mm-hmm. you're always waiting. You're always afraid that, oh, I've got this friend and they may not be a person of color, but hey, we're getting along real good. And I'm going to go up to your house and, you know, I'm going to hang out and we're going to, you know, play G.I. Joe as a kid. And oh, your uncle just came through and dropped the end ball. And so you always got to be aware of that in a way that I don't know if other other people have to all the time. So but that's, you know, I just wanted to kind of mention that. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I'm a white woman, but I'm <laughs> getting ready to 
move to North Carolina next year. Oh, really? And, oh, wow. Yeah. Granted, I'll be in the in the bit of a white bubble of Asheville, but I had to. Yeah, I'm excited, but I had to kind of check myself earlier on in in when COVID had started because you know I was making some kind of comments on social media about how you know the idiots in the South. Mm-hmm. <laughs> are you know and I, i'm thinking white right wing evangelicals but you know some people some white friends that are you know super socially active are calling me out like look don't generalize the yeah. south i've definitely been guilty of that but your book definitely messed with that generalization i think it would for anybody else struggling with that perspective but you've said the southern experience isn't defined by confederate apologists in another interview which amen i love it uh but what it is what is it defined by in your opinion i think the south growing up in the south like i said before i i, I love the south i'm not ashamed to be from the south I, I, because I love the South, I feel compelled to criticize her. I feel compelled to make her better. Because when it's beautiful, when it's right down here, it's the best thing in the world. I mean, there's nothing like I, I, my childhood. Like I said, we were really poor, but we weren't poor in spirit. I never felt unloved. And, you know, there was, you know, I grew up climbing magnolia trees and fishing for crawdads in a creek and you know, and 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 running through the woods wide open with my cousins and learning about the natural world, learning about how to start a fire, learning about how to field dress a deer, learning about respect for nature, respect for the environment. Mm-hmm. When you do a garden, don't overplant your garden. You know, don't mm-hmm. you know use you know don't over don't use the soil, don't take it for advantage for for granted. And so, you know, being a part of the and I think the community of the South. And when I say the community of the South, you know, the shared experiences that you can have down here. There's like for instance, cooking. There's something about cooking in the South that is just this all encompassing familial experience. You know, if you go to your grandma's house or your or your uncle's house or somebody's house. And I can tear up just thinking about it. But you go to that house and they're cooking in the kitchen and it's a, you know, a Fourth of July celebration and they're making all kinds of good food. But it's not just the food, it's the community, it's the connection that you have to to those people, you know, your extended cousins and your, you know, you know. And so there's this just an overwhelming sense of family and love. But at the same time, there are, you know, we live, you know, I live 30 minutes from the former capital of the Confederacy. And so, you know, there's, there's a grotesqueness to the South. There's an intolerableness to the South. There's a, like you said, there's, there's people here who, you know, feel like it's their place. And I'll be damned if I let some neo-Confederate apologist tell me and define for me what my experience in the South is supposed to be. That history doesn't belong to them by themselves. You know, my grandfather, great grandfather and great uncles and great aunts and ancestors, they fought and died and bled on this land that you want to trot upon and wave your Confederate flag. And so mm-hmm. I feel it's my duty to speak up and say that because you you I won't let you sully the memories that I have growing up here because those mm-hmm. belong to me. And so, you know, or in a, in a more prosaic way, you know. The, the experience of the South is defined by, like I said, sweet tea and cookouts and climbing trees and running creeks and field parties mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, juke joints on Saturday night and church on Sunday morning. And, and that sense of wildness and freedom coupled mm-hmm. with a sense of community. And I don't think I won't let anybody take that away from us. I won't. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the East Coast growing up on the East Coast, there is 
more of a sense of, you know, just my South Jersey Italian family, but um, <laughs> it's definitely more emotionally frigid, I would call it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I understand it. I understand it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we we did a lot around food, but mm-hmm. this is where I'm kind of envious of you and then, and then folks in the South with this really strong sense of family and community. It's so beautiful. It's part a huge part of the reason I'm drawn to the South and the other thing, I mean, another thing is the music as well. Oh, yeah, the music. I mean, you know, and the funny thing about the South is that because, because we're forced to confront race and class in a way that I think some other regions of the country aren't, you see mm. it reflected in the art that comes out of the South, the music, the writing, yes. you know, the creativity, you know, people that come out of the South, you know, there's a direct line and I'm not the first person to say this, but there's a direct line from, uh, uh, gospel and spiritual music to the blues, to country, to bluegrass, mm-hmm. to, you know, R&B, rhythm, blues, all the way down to hip hop. I am definitely a fan of that. I am lucky and feel blessed to be in an area where that is a part of my, you know, childhood lexicon. You know, my uncle's, you know, playing guitar on the porch after a family gathering. You know, mm. it, it, th- those are the things, you know, I listen to, you know, when I hear, for instance, if I hear the Allman Brothers band. And I hear the late Greg Allman sing about feeling like he's, you know, being beaten. He loves this woman so hard. I can identify with that, not just from an emotional standpoint, but from a geographical standpoint. You know, growing up in the South makes you confront certain things, like I said, that maybe you don't have to confront in other parts of the country. And I think it it, it creates a sense of, as I said on my pin post on Twitter, you know, we grew up in the shadow of the Confederacy. It's not easy, but my mama didn't raise no punk. And so it definitely yeah. it definitely does something for you. Uh, but at the same time, like I said, I love I just I love it. I love, you know, but I've been to other parts. Like, I love New York City. I love going to visit New York. I love going traveling, you know, because you know, like Mark Twain said, no man that travels can remain an idiot forever. And, um, That's right. you know, so I love that. But, yeah, there's like yesterday morning I woke up and went looked out uh, my back window over my sink, you know, and there's a couple of wild turkeys just walking around my backyard. And there's a mm-hmm. sense of sense of tranquility that comes with that that you can't get. I'm biased, but you can't get it anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I love it. I have a really good friend that lives in Asheville who's um, a queer person. And as a queer person moving into the area, you know, they said, "Here's the thing about the South: like the the prejudice is way more in your face, you know. So mm-hmm. you got to be." prepared for that yeah she's not they're not lying i mean yeah it's definitely more but i think also how can i put it it's it's you know i have some friends who are lgbtq i you know of course i come from the uh, black community there's that prejudice there but there's also people that will stand with you you know and and they will you know there's people that will stand with you that that have your back and so you, you don't feel as alone and what i mean is this isn't an insult to any city but like I've seen situations like in, in a same in place in New York City where somebody's being unfortunately racist. And a lot of times it becomes an isolated incident with those two or three combatants. Let's say that mm-hmm. same situation I've seen down here in the South, you know, and there's people, there's grandmamas that will come out and tell you to hush your mouth. They will tell, you know, there's a sense <laughs> of there's a sense of, you know, we got your back, especially in a small yeah. community. And so, you know, like I said, again, the South is beautiful and grotesque all at the same time. But you're going to love Asheville. I got a friend named. A writer named Jamie Mason who lives in Asheville, who's a fantastic author. And Asheville just—I have a friend who's a belly dancer. Asheville just is this beautiful center and nexus of art and creativity, and uh, I love it down there. It's, it's wonderful. Well, I'll tell you what, your book has 
totally opened you know i already loved the south for those certain things that i know of it the family the food the music the the outdoors the my friend mm-hmm. calls it the, the thickness that mm-hmm. exists in the south your book and this conversation has really confirmed my decision to to be there <laughs> well if the if, if we get through this this whole COVID thing and, and that calms down a little i have a really i have a lot of real good friends that live in north carolina and uh i visit down there a lot so we'll, we'll have to uh get together and 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 uh have a discussion over some uh some good southern cuisine, some cornbread and some uh, yes. oven, fried, oven fried chicken and uh, yes. homemade biscuits. So <laughs> I'm there. You tell me when. We'll end on this question. What do you think aspiring black writers need? To Three know? things you need to know for any writer, but specifically if you are a, a, a African-American, a black writer. One, you have to develop a really thick skin. You do. You're going to get rejected a lot. You're going to get told that your experiences are not, they're not marketable. You're going to be told that there's not a a big audience for your experiences and you just got to push forward. You got to, it's going to hurt. It's going to be days where you doubt yourself. It's going to be nights where you may sit there and cry, but you've got to, if this is what you feel like you put on earth to do, you've got to develop a thick skin. I think number two, and this is now, this sounds really, uh, really uh, Madison Avenue, but you've got to make connections you got to make connections, reach out to other writers of color, not just black writers, but any writer that's from a marginalized group, whether it's LGBTQ or other minorities or, or women, reach out to those those groups, make those connections, because at the end of the day, they're going to have you back in a way maybe some other people won't. And so you definitely have to foster those community, those, those connections. Um, and number three, and this goes for any writer, read a lot and write a lot. It, it sounds mm-hmm. simplistic, but that's you got to read a lot. And I'm not going to sit and tell you you got to write every day. I don't think anybody should tell anybody that or how to write. But I definitely think you have to write a lot. You definitely have to because writing is, is like building a muscle. You know, if you want to get big muscles, you have to lift weights. Now, you don't have to lift weights every day and you don't have to lift weights three, four hours a day. It, you have to find a, a system that works for you. But you have to do it and you have to do it consistently. Whatever it works for you, do it consistently. And same thing like reading is still building that muscle. You know, reading for pleasure is great. And in the pleasure, you'll find words that you may not have been aware of. You'll find techniques and you'll see and study the craft in a way that maybe you wouldn't do um, without that, without reading those books. And so those are the three things I would suggest uh, for anyone, but especially writers of color. You definitely the number one thing is get a thick skin. Because not not everybody's going to like you, and that's okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to show your support, please head over to patreon.com slash situation and story. For as little as $7 a month, you can enjoy bonus content of authors reading from their books. Until next time, read on.